story is told uh, that during a rather dry, dusty sermon at church, a man heaved a sigh and died in the sanctuary. An usher quickly called an ambulance. When the paramedics arrived, they quietly did their job while the minister droned on and on and on. When the emergency team left, an usher heard one of the medics talking on the ambulance radio. He said, we picked up six people before we got the right one. <laughs> now, sometimes us preachers think we've got it all together and you need to listen to our words. And so we drone on and on and on. And I'm hoping this morning that that will not be the case with you and with me. Uh, chapter 10 of Isaiah is a little bit of a difficult passage, but I hope that it would speak to you this morning. So it's Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Now let me ask you a question. Do you ever have something happen to you or see something happen maybe in your family or your office or in your personal life or maybe in the country and you kind of left your head, you're scratching your head and you're thinking, why did the Lord, why did the Lord let that happen? Or what in heaven's name is the Lord doing? <laughs> Have you ever had that kind of experience? What's going on? I mean, why did God, in his sovereign will, let this happen? I think all of us uh, have had that kind of situation. Amen? Now, uh, in Romans chapter uh, 9, 10, and 11, Paul takes about three chapters in the book of Romans, and he's talking about Israel. And he's trying to tell... Um, a rather confusing situation because God has made a new covenant now through Jesus Christ. The old covenant is past. Well, how does Israel fit into this new thing? And Paul takes three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, to kind of give a large explanation of how this all works together. And at the end, in chapter 11, let me read you his conclusion. Chapter 11, he says... This is 1133, if you want to mark it in your notes, 1133. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. He goes on, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who was first given to him that it might be paid back again to him? For from him... Through him, to him, are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's where I got the title of my message, our talk this morning, The Unfathomable Ways of the Lord. Sometimes he does something and you're thinking, what? <laughs> Say, what? <laughs> what are you doing, Lord? Why are you doing this in my life? Why are you doing this in my family, in my business? What's going on? I want to talk about that this morning using Isaiah chapter 10 kind of help us understand, see some factors, some things that are foundational that you need to hold on to when unfathomable things are going on. Now, the context is Southern Kingdom, okay, about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Assyria, a pagan nation that does not honor God, does not honor his people, doesn't even believe in him, and the pagan nation of Assyria is being blessed. They're conquering country after country after country, heading down towards Jerusalem, 
And everybody's thinking, uh, what are you doing? Uh, I thought you were supposed to bless God's people and uh, work against the pagans, right? That's what God does. Uh, but he seems to be doing the exact opposite. So people are saying, what are you doing, God? What's happening? So, the question would come into your mind. Why would God bless a pagan nation? A pagan nation that doesn't honor his word, doesn't honor his presence, has nothing to do with his people. Matter of fact, are antagonistic towards. Why would God bless that nation? Interesting question. I'm hoping to answer it. Now, I framed my arguments this morning with two main statements. Uh, we're going to talk about the unbelievers in the hands of a holy God and believers in the hands of a loving God because both of those come into context. And I, uh, I, I kind of robbed that from a preacher called Jonathan Edwards who preached a sermon in 1741. Maybe you've heard about it. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. <laughs> so I've kind of stolen that. So we're talking about unbelievers in the hand of a holy God and believers in the hand of a loving God. So let's take a look. First, let's talk about unbelievers in the hand of a holy God. And there's three factors that you've always got to keep in mind. First, God's plans are not always evident. God's plans are not always evident. Read with me verses 5 through 6. And we'll kind of just take these one at a time. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against the godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty, to seize, plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets. God's plans are not always evident. One would think the unbelieving nation, the pagan nation, would not prosper. But notice what it says. God is using Assyria, God is using Assyria to bring discipline against a godless nation. Now, who's that godless nation? It's the southern kingdom. Now, they had a veneer, what I call a very thin veneer of, of godliness, but in their hearts, they weren't worshiping God. And God was going to use the pagan nation of Assyria to discipline the southern kingdom. Now, could he have done this another way? Could he have disciplined the southern kingdom in a different way? Well, sure, he could do anything he wants. But he has chosen this way, using Assyria, the rod of my anger against his people who had forgotten and deserted him. He could have done it any other way, but he decided to use Assyria. Now, about 130 years later, um, there's a prophet called Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to pronounce it. And this is about 130 years after what we're reading here. And Habakkuk is looking at what's going on in Jerusalem, and he says, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, let me read it. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you violence. Yeah, you do not save. What are you doing, God? Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. 
Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And what had happened is Israel had been given a warning by Assyria, but 130 years later, they're not paying any attention. They've diverted, they've drifted back away from the Lord. And then God answers Habakkuk with these words in verse 5. He says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished and wonder, because I am doing something in your days, you would not believe it even if you were told. He says, behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who marched throughout the earth and seized dwelling places which are not theirs. So 130 years later, he did the same thing with the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. He used them as an instrument of his will. And so when we look at that and we think, why are you using pagans to do your will? The Lord's plans are not always evident, especially when he does something like that. So the first thing you always have to keep in mind is the Lord's plans are not always evident. How he works is not always evident to you or the the pagans. And that's my second point. Unbelievers' plans are often very different. So God has a plan, but the unbelievers, they're working another, they got their own stick, so to speak. They're working their own angle. Look with me in verses 7 through 11. He continues. So Assyria is the rod of his anger to punish, to discipline the southern kingdom. Verse 7. Yet it, that is Assyria, does not intend, nor does it plan so in its heart. But rather its plan, its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Now the Lord had a plan. He wanted Assyria to go in there to capture them, to seize, to plunder, to trample them, to humble them. But what was Assyria's plan? Assyria's plan was to do what? Wipe them out. Burn the city just like I did to Jerusalem and all those other places. And kill and destroy all of them. That was Assyria's plans. Now, so God has his plans. He's using pagan nations. But the pagans, they got some other work. They're doing their own little thing. Now, some think because circumstances um, are working out for them that somehow God approves of their plans. You know, oftentimes people, people talk about open doors. Well, the Lord just opened a door and everything's working out, so it must be God's will. Well, I think that's an interesting thought, but it doesn't go along with what the, past, the scriptures say. In James chapter 4, verse 13, Listen to what James writes. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. The Assyrian king, was he was going to go to Jerusalem and burn it down. That was his plan. Yet, James goes on, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. 
you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, here it is, if the Lord wills, we will live also do this or that. But it is your boasting in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. God has his plans. Oftentimes we don't understand it. Unbelievers, their plans are also very different. We need to remember those. So we look at strange things happening that going around us. The third response turns it, factor turns it kind of all around. God's response is always in line with his plans. Oftentimes God's plans are not evident. Oftentimes unbelievers have another shtick, another thing they're working. That's fine. But God's response to them is always in line, not with their plans, but his plans. You've got to hold that in mind. Look with me at verses 12 through 19. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Why? For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. For I have understanding and I removed the boundaries of the people and I plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached into the riches of the peoples like a nest as one gathers abandoned eggs and I gathered all the earth. And there was not one of them that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chopped it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who yields it? This is the Lord speaking. That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, talking about the king of Assyria. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns, his briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. God's response is always in line with our plans. When the Lord is finished with Assyria, he will punish his arrogant heart. Now, if you read in 2 Kings chapter 19, the story is told. Sennacherib comes down. He's the king of Assyria. He comes down. He surrounds Jerusalem with 185,000 men. It looks like it's over. One night, one night, an angel of the Lord comes down and decimates his army. And King Sennacherib has to flee back up to Assyria with a tail between his legs, so to speak. And later on, slightly thereafter, he's worshiping God in his pagan temple, and guess what? Two of his own sons 
assassinated. God said, God said, I will punish the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. Why? For what he had in his heart against Jerusalem, but also because he said, by the power of my hand, I, I've had all this success because of the greatness of my mind and my strength. His success, he thought, came from himself when it was God who had empowered him to be successful in all that he attempted. Then he says in verses 16 through 19, he says, therefore, because of verses 13, 14, and 15, I am going to take his army. And he pictures his army as a giant forest. You see that in verses 18 and 19? It's giant forest. And he says, I'm going to chop them down so much so that only a little child, a child, a little child could number them. There are going to be so few of them, it could be like a little baby could count. Oh, there's one, two, three, four. That's his point. Now, a parallel, a parallel is found in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4, you might want to write that down and read it. The story is told about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Do you remember the story? He's on his roof. He's looking at his city, and he's saying, wow, look at all that I have done. Aren't I the greatest thing since sliced bread? In a sense that he's saying. And he says, as the words were formed in his mind, and they came out of his mouth, what did God do? He struck him with insanity, and for a period of years, he acted like an animal until he came to his senses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it is, I'm turning there. There it is. Paul is dealing with the Corinthians, and they think they're doing real great. Man, we're, we're the best church around. Look what he says. For who regards you as spiritual? He goes on. Now, ask yourself these questions. What do you have? He goes on. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had received it? <laughs> what do you have that you did not receive? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Heavenly Father. Paul wrote, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So what does that mean? Everything that you have, the mind that God has given you, the abilities that he has given you in your hand, the talents that he has given you, the health that he has given you, the family that he has given you, the success in business that he has given you. Everything that you have is from God. You're a product of his grace. And he says, why are you boasting as if you didn't receive it? Something for us to consider. No matter where we are in our spiritual journey, whether we're thinking about becoming a Christian or we've been a Christian for many years, Paul writes, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, the heart of unbelievers is kind of summed up in this poem I found. 
And it's by, it's called Invictus by William Henley. Think about what the New Testament proclaims. It says, he writes, it matters not how straight the gate. Now remember what Jesus said? Narrow and straight is the gate, the way to salvation. So Henley writes, it matters not how straight the gate. And he goes on. Or how charged the punishment of the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. See, Mr. Henley said, doesn't make any difference what the scriptures say. It doesn't make any difference how narrow it is. I'm in charge and I am the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. That is sown in the heart of those who have not bent their knee to Lord Jesus Christ. God's plans are not always evident. Unbelievers' plans are always somehow different. But God's response is always in line with his plans. His sovereign will will be accomplished. Okay. We've talked about the unbelievers enough. Let's talk about believers in the hands of a loving God. Beginning in verse 20. First thing we see is God's plans are always redemptive. When he's talking about Dealing with you as a believer, God's plans are always redemptive. Look with me in verses 20 through 23. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For Though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the holy land. God's plans are always redemptive. Why was he doing, why was he using Assyria? to discipline his people. Well, here it is in verse 20. He is going to bring them to a place where they'll never rely on anybody else but the Lord. Do you see that? You'll never rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. What does that mean? Well, if you remember the last time we were together in chapter 9, it talked about the northern kingdom, Samaria, they were Jewish people, but they had separated from the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom joined with a country called Aram, a pagan nation, and they were pressing down to attack the southern kingdom. Okay? So what did the people in the southern kingdom do? Did they trust the Lord? Oh, no, no, no. What they decided, they put a phone call in for Assyria. Come and help us fight against the, the northern kingdom. So, Assyria was more than happy. They came in, they snuffed out the northern kingdom, they snuffed out Aram, but guess what? They didn't stop. They just marched right on down to Jerusalem. And so God was going to teach them. He was teaching them not to rely on any nation or any source or any strength that they thought they had, but to rely only on the Holy One of Israel. That's why he was doing that. That's why he was using this pagan nation to do that. 
Now, how was he going to do that? Verses 21 through 23. Notice what he says. Only a remnant. Only a small remnant will return on that day. Now, I looked at that question, verse 20, and I said, hmm. My question came to my mind. What does he mean in that day? Now, you have to understand kind of what's going on. So first, Assyria came down and threatened the, northern ki- uh, the southern kingdom. And uh, God gave them a warning, and he sent Assyria packing. 130 years later, they didn't listen, and guess what? The Babylonians came down. And what did the Babylonians do? They captured Jerusalem, they burned the city, destroyed the temple, and took everybody exiled. Now, after that had happened, on that day, just a small remnant returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And he was, allow- he was doing this so that they would trust not in Assyria, not in Babylon, not in Egypt, not in anybody, but only in the Lord God. Now, you might think, um, that's a little severe. <laughs> I mean, look at that, only a, re- only a small number of people? But you have to understand, that's in your mind. That is my mind. Couldn't he have done it some other way? Couldn't he have gotten their attention? He could have, but obviously he chose the best. Because the Lord knows the heart of those people. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. Now, you have to understand that God's plans are always redemptive towards you. Um, What does it say in Ezekiel uh, 33.11? It says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And if you look at that passage, he's not talking to unbelievers, to pagans. He's talking to Israel. And he says, Israel, return, return to me. I take no, I take no pleasure in judging you. That's the heart of God towards you, towards the believer. Return. I didn't want to do this. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He took no pleasure in doing what he was doing. As a matter of fact, it says in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So you'll call me and search for me, and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's the heart of, the, of God towards you, towards the believer. It's always redemptive, always redemptive. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wasn't looking forward to doing this. It's not his heart. It's always redemptive towards you, towards me, towards Israel. Okay, God's plans are always redemptive. Believers' plans, however, should conform to God's word. Look with me in verses 24 through 27. So God's plans are always redemptive, okay? Now, let's look. Believers' plans should conform to God's word. Therefore, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrians who strike you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you as the Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed towards their destruction. The Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did Egypt. 
So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. Believers' plans should be conformed to God's word. Look what he says in verse 34. He says, therefore, therefore, believers should not fear Assyria because he is taking care of them. See, oftentimes, um, when God tells us something in his word, our, our thoughts and our actions should not be directed by our feelings or our circumstances, but should be directed by God's word. He's telling him, it looks pretty bad. Jerusalem was surrounded by 185,000 people. They couldn't even muster a third of that against them. It was over. But wait, it wasn't over, was it? God took care of it. Now, when we face difficulties, it's easy to fall into despair, isn't it? It's easy to get depressed and become pessimistic. If we look at our circumstances, if we look at uh, our feelings, but he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm telling you, don't fear them. I'm going to take care of it. So believers' plans should always conform to God's word. Third factor we see, verses 28 through 34. God's response always favors those who believe. Doesn't work out perfectly, but look what we see here in verses 28 through 34. He, and he's talking about the king of Assyria and his armies, he has come against Iath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he deposited his baggage. They have gone through the pass saying, Geba will be our lodging place. Ramah is terrified. Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Cry aloud with your voice, daughters of Gilam. Pay attention, Laish, wretched Anathoth, Madmehen has fled. The inhabitants of Gebam have sought refuge. Yet today, he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the burrows with a terrible crash. Those also will be cut to stature, will be cut down. Those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. God's response always favors those who believe. Now, here's the reason why we should uh, trust God in his word. Notice what he says. These verses and these strange name towns that I kind of bang through are the towns that began in the north as the Assyrian army marched from Samaria down towards Jerusalem. They're all the towns that he captured. Okay? So he's saying, okay, he's going to capture this down, he's going to capture this down, he's going to capture this down, but when he gets to Jerusalem, I'm going to finish him off. And notice he says in verse 34, he will cut down the thickets of his forest. That's an illusion, once again, an illusion to seeing the Assyrian army as a forest, and he's just going to cut them down. Now, this is a picture often how the Lord works. It looked like the Assyrian army, the enemy, the pagans, were just going to win 
and win and win and win and win. And just about the time they thought they were really going to win, snuffed them out. That has some interesting parallels in our particular situation. Now, the Lord doesn't always work it out perfectly, amen? He didn't do it the way the southern kingdom would want. He, he got every town right up to the last place, the capital, Jerusalem. Every other city fell, and it looked like it was over, but it was far from over. Now, it doesn't mean everything works out perfectly, okay? Uh, Paul writes in his epistles, he says, those who would seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will do what? Suffer persecution. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And he also says, in Matthew 16, he says, the gates of hell, the forces of the devil, the forces of the pagan enemies will not prevail against my church. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. I mean, they just march right down from north to south, right to the gates of Jerusalem. And then they were out. God's response is always favorable to those who believe. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And there's been times when, ah, looks pretty scary. But you need to hold these, hold these, these factors in mind when things begin to go sideways in your life. Now, classic, big, kind of wrapping it up, classic biblical example, I'll give you a biblical example and then a current example. A biblical example is, do you remember the story found in Genesis chapter 22? Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take his only son, the son of promise, and take him to Mount Moriah and to offer him up as a living sacrifice. Huh? Say, what? You want to do what? And there's that story, the beginning of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And for hundreds of years, nobody could explain that Scripture. Right? All our Jewish friends, when they would read that, they would say, ah, boy, oh, what God was doing in Genesis 22 makes no sense because it goes, seems to go exactly against the nature and the character of God. Isn't that true? God never would want to do that. Do that. Why did he allow that to happen? Then all of a sudden, you know what happens? The New Testament comes along. Ah, the precious son, the beloved son, the son of promise takes a piece of wood and hauls it up Mount Moriah to become a sacrifice. And it says, he said to Abraham, and God will provide himself a sacrifice. Uh, all of a sudden, ah, we understand what was very confusing at the time and seemed to go directly against the will of God. Now suddenly the sun comes out and everybody sees exactly what God was doing. He was telling us in a very dramatic way of what he was going to do with his son, the promised son, the blessed son, the son of promise who would die on the cross for sins. 
Okay. Now, let me give you a, maybe a more um, current example. The forces of Antichrist and the forces of uh, the pagans were pushing at the door to the White House. Now, I'm not against the Democrats, but Mrs. Clinton had an agenda for us. I'm telling you. Now, I'm not paranoid, but we saw in her emails what she was going to do with our Catholic friends. She was after them. And do you think she was going to leave us alone? We dodged the bullet. We dodged the bullet when she was defeated. Everybody thought she was going to win. The forces uh, were all ready to celebrate. And then God gave us an opportunity. He gave us our nation a second chance. The Assyrians were at the door to the White House. But guess what? God gave us a warning. He gave us a warning shot across the bow. And he's telling us, telling our nation. Now, if history proves itself, Israel didn't listen to the first warning. 130 years later, the Babylonians came down and they finished his work. Now, I would think, you're thinking, well, Neil, you're way off. But I, I think it's providential that this sermon, my talk this morning, when I think one pastor said to his wife, honey, if the Clintons get into the White House, I'll be in jail in four years. They were against, and they were getting ready to launch an attack against the evangelical, Bible-believing, God-honoring, God-pleasing churches in, the, in America. And God has given us a second chance. I really believe that. I believe that with all my heart. Now, here's the question. Will our country hear what he's saying to us? Now, certainly we don't agree with Mr. Trump and all some of his silly, silly things, but I think God has used him to give the church, to give America a second chance. Now, here's the question. Will we listen? Will we listen? I pray that we do. Please pray with me. Father, we uh, want to say to you that we so love your word and what it speaks to us, how it speaks to us. We pray that the parallels between our country and what happened to our dear friends in the southern kingdom would be clearly evident to everyone and we would turn from our veneer of righteousness to real righteousness. May you bring revival to this country. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.